Hi, it's Dina. And for the past year, we've brought you lots of stories from Ukraine. Among other things, we introduced you to members of the IT Army. We explained how high-tech companies are banding together to help Ukrainians fend off Russia and cyberspace. And we spoke to a vice mayor in the city of Bucha who is preserving evidence of war crimes. We're taking a break in December so we can bring you more of that kind of coverage in the new year. But we thought you'd like this story from a recent episode of the Last Archive podcast. New Yorker staff writer and host Jill Lepore sat down with Anna Kias, the head of the Lilly Music Library at Tufts University. Kias is working on a project that aims to protect Ukrainian culture from the ravages of war. And here's how she's doing it. Have a listen. Welcome to The Last Archivist, the show where I take you out of the last archive and into other people's collections. If you listen to the show, you know how much I admire librarians and the work they do. This episode, I'm talking to Anna Kiaz, a truly incredible librarian and researcher. She's head of the music library at Tufts University and co-founder of an effort to archive and preserve resources that are at risk of disappearing because of the war in Ukraine. When a war breaks out, critical infrastructure breaks down. Kiaz and a few others sprung into action not long after Russia invaded Ukraine in late February. And they started Sucho, which stands for Saving Ukrainian Cultural History Online. They cobbled together a group of librarians, archivists, programmers, and other wizards of the internet and started working to save digital Ukrainian artifacts from vanishing. Sucho now has over a thousand volunteers in different parts of the world working together. And it was really excited to talk to Kiaz about how she and her team are making this project work. My name is Anna Kias, and I am the head of Lilly Music Library at Tufts University, and I am a co-organizer of Sucho with Quinn Dombrovsky from Stanford and Sebastian Meisterovich from the Austrian Center for Digital Humanities. And, and Sucho stands for? So it stands for Saving Ukrainian um, Cultural Heritage Online. So I, I sometimes think about what the kind of work that you're doing right now as librarian special ops um, just this sort of incredibly emergency rescue operation, kind of the FEMA of the archives. So what is meant by the expression data rescue? So rescuing data from the web means that if there are documents or, you know, archival materials that have been digitized or are born digital, so they, you know, didn't exist in analog prior, and perhaps there's a government that's trying to change the narrative or erase a culture's identity, they may censor, they may delete information, they may get rid of those files, and then that data is no longer accessible. And so data rescue comes into play when you have people who are using a variety of different technologies, whether it's web scraping or crawling, and trying to preserve that kind of snapshot of what existed at a certain point in time so that it can then be used as evidence, whether it's for you know documenting war crimes, whether it's for documenting the fact that these artifacts existed in a specific place and time and no longer do because of a government or an aggressor that has come in and invaded a country. So I wonder if you could just tell me how this project started. Yes, of course. So at the end of February, with the invasion of Ukraine, um, I was actually preparing for a music library conference. And so one of the things that I've been involved with in the past and ongoing is digital humanities work. And so I have participated in data rescue before. Um, And so I thought, well, let's organize 
a workshop where we can do data rescue focused on music collections during the conference because we're going to have all these librarians together. Just live at the conference, like in real time, let's just sit and do it. Exactly. Yeah. Just kind of like a hackathon type thing, right? Um, and so I put out a call on Twitter and I said, you know, let's do this. And at that point, you know, I thought, well, let's see how things pan out because the, you know, the invasion just happened. And so things were starting to move a little more quickly in terms of people panicking about cultural heritage being destroyed. Um, so I did get a couple hundred people who signed up for the workshop. And then I thought, wow, this is actually bigger than I thought. And so at the same time, one of my colleagues, Quinn Dombrowski at Stanford, um, we were in conversation about, well, maybe we could do something larger and focus more broadly on cultural heritage that's been digitized. And then our third collaborator, Sebastian, he's in Vienna and he was also tweeting and saying, well, you know, I'd like to do a cultural heritage data rescue. And we basically just launched the Sucho effort from, you know, just getting together and talking. And then we started pulling in other people. So can you tell me a little bit about how you scaled the project up from the 100 volunteers working in real time at a musicology conference to the project as it exists now and a little bit about how much you've been able to collect? It did happen quite quickly. <laughs> Within a few days after we launched the project, we had over a thousand volunteers and we, we have a Slack channel. So we're using Slack to basically project manage this whole effort. <laughs> so what we did was you know, like any any good project manager, uh, you create teams and you have people working on specific tasks. So we have an enormous spreadsheet and then other spreadsheets, depending on what you're doing. People are working on using web scraping technologies to grab information from different archives and then package it up and put it in our server online. And so each of those project teams has a particular tool or software that they're using. So it's really a collaborative effort. And it's quite impressive, honestly, to, to see such a large group of people be able to interact so well and to um, just work and collaborate so well together. Are there cultural institutions within Ukraine that have reached out to you to ask for help that they that, that felt they were particularly vulnerable, awaiting, you know, troops or an attack or with their servers location threatened? Or are you making the decisions yourselves about how to prioritize the capturing? Generally, we are prioritizing any cultural heritage institution, whether small, you know, rural museum or um, an art school, all the way up to the national libraries and the museums at universities. And so we are trying to archive as much of it as we can. Um, we have reached out and we've been hearing from some of the institutions in the Ukraine, um, but sometimes it's just difficult to actually be in communication with them because of, you know, what's going on on the ground. And so they are asking if we can then store them and then return them afterwards back to them. Um, but generally speaking, there hasn't been a coordinated effort to reach out to different institutions across Ukraine because of just sort of the urgency and the fact that people are um, not necessarily able to answer emails or be in communication um, during the war. So I'm trying to think about versions of this in other wars. And I mean, I think listeners probably immediately think about the hiding away of paintings and sculpture during the Second World War um, from Nazi Germany, for instance, um, or just, you know, family attempts to put your stuff in a strong box and bury it against looters and 
marauding soldiers. What other moments in history would have felt like this to people in your position, librarians and archivists, doing their best to secret away the literary and cultural treasures of a people and a nation? I mean, not just the kind of political accounting and record keeping, um, but in particular, the cultural heritage piece of it really fascinates me. I think more recently, so thinking back to when um, Russia invaded Crimea in 2014, and there were museums and institutions where looting occurred. And so artifacts were stolen, were removed either to Russia or they were destroyed. Um, In some cases, librarians and museums, um, archivists, etc., were able to preserve and to hide away those materials. But when buildings are burned down or, or bombed, damage occurs. And so not all that material can be preserved. And so I think it's important that in addition to kind of trying to safe keep the physical objects, this, you know, at this point in time with the digital representation, it's sort of a kind of a fail safe, like, okay, well, we have, we'll have a bit backup. If the physical artifacts are damaged or destroyed or stolen, then we can have potentially still this representation that people can look at and use. It's important that the identity in whether it's Ukraine or you know other countries that may face invasion, um, that their identity isn't destroyed, it's not erased. And I think that the cultural heritage um, that is present in the Ukraine is something that can easily be destroyed right now, especially. So you had a music library at Tufts, and I have been really struck by the role that music has played uh, really on social media with regard to the artistic expression of people living under siege, right? The orchestral performance in the public square at Kiev, the, the beautiful little girl seeing the Ukrainian anthem in a subway. Um, there was another... Um, like maybe it was a quartet performing in a in a subway, I think, in Kiev. So I'm I'm wondering, on the other side of the preservation is the performance and the continued reception of this material. Like, have you been watching those performances? What do they mean to you as someone you know working to think about the preservation of this culture and including including the history of its musical performances? Yeah, I I have seen some of the clips, but I think those are really powerful statements. You know, the musicians are not only trying to, you know, demonstrate to the people that are there in the audience that they're hopeful, right? And that they're performing for the people because they want to make sure that their music doesn't get taken away, their identity doesn't get taken away. So I think it's a powerful statement. And I think it's, if you look at, you know, different points in history, you know, music has been whether it's been documented, you know, as historical fact or whether there's stories that are told. So, for example, you know, on the Titanic, right, uh, when the Titanic was sinking and they had music playing, whether it was to calm people or whether it was to just sort of make people feel like, OK, you know, we can get through this together. We have um, this music that we enjoy during the Holocaust. I mean, as an undergraduate, I performed a selection of songs that were composed during um, the Holocaust by Jewish musicians. And they, you know, had performances during the camps to entertain each other, but to also sort of keep each other's morale and hopes up. So I think that's, you know, that's really something that um, I think about. Music is an important part of a people's identity as well. I know you must be immensely busy just doing the work of managing the project and all these volunteers and this incredible, you know, wealth of material to be collected and, and, and just 
coping day to day with the, the the organizational hurdles and challenges of the project. But for our listeners, is there something that you could tell us about um, a site or an object or a piece that makes it feel all worth it to you to be doing this? I imagine on top of your full time job, right? This is just this is just volunteer work. For right. everyone, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. It is. It definitely is. Um, there is a historical collection of Jewish musical folklore that we were able to archive. And it's really, um, for, for me, as you know, as a musician, as a music librarian, it's really interesting because it captures from 1912 to 1947. So it's an early period of 20th century. And it's from wax cylinders. And so you can actually hear the audio from these cylinders and you can visit the site and learn about the different musicians and the form of musical and you know styles that are being performed. Um, so it, it preserves a you know piece of Jewish history, Jewish music history, as well as Ukrainian history. And so that I think is really really powerful to me that we were able to archive that. Um, and we have been seeing you know the internet across the Ukraine is kind of you know, it goes up and down. Sometimes it's out. And so sometimes we capture, archive these sites, and then the website disappears and it goes down and it may return or it may not. Right. So when you when you archive these things, you feel like, OK, we're, you know, we're actually helping save some of this content or data so that we could give it back to the institution or the library that it belongs to when they need it. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for that. That really um, says it all. Thank you. That was Anna Kias. She's head of the Lilly Music Library at Tufts University in Boston. And she was speaking with Jill Lepore, the host of the Last Archive podcast. It's produced by Pushkin Industries. You can listen to more episodes from the Last Archive wherever you get your podcasts. This is Click Here. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. We'll be back in January with more new episodes. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.